0: Let us now return to that portion of Scripture that we read earlier from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, focusing on these verses, 28 to 48. But if we want one particular verse that might be regarded as our text for the evening, we would find it there in verse 44. Luke chapter 19, verse 44, may well be regarded as our text, and that verse reads, And shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave it thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And particularly, the time of thy visitation. And that is the title I would like to give to the sermon tonight for our edification. Time of visitation. And what Jesus is talking about here is, we shall look at it in detail later, but he's talking about that time when Jerusalem would be destroyed. And it was destroyed because the people in Jerusalem in general and Israel did not recognize the day of the Lord's visitation upon them. In the Bible, the Lord visits in two senses primarily. He either visits in judgment or he visits in mercy. And it's in mercy that Jesus is referring to here. The people of Jerusalem and the people of Israel did not appreciate that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might also say John the Baptist, and the prophets that went before them, which foretold of the coming of Christ— that they did not recognize that God had visited them in mercy. And they disdained the day of mercy. And because of this, God was then going to visit them in a day of wrath and of judgment. We want to look at this section that we read and we want to draw three things from it. We have three headings that we wish to concentrate upon, which reveal this, the teaching in these verses for us uh, this evening. First of all, we have then, from verses 28 to 40, the largest part of the section, from verses 28 to 40, we have the acclaim of Jesus the acclaim of Jesus. Luke is telling us and has been telling us for some time in his gospel that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And in verse 28, when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And verse 41, he tells us that he's needing it, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Luke is telling us for a long time in this gospel that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to not drag this out as it were but he wants to emphasize that this is this is the messiah this is the son of god this is the son of god fulfilling prophecy and he is on his way to jerusalem and at jerusalem he's going to carry out and accomplish the ultimate purpose of his of his coming to this world and Luke, therefore, is wanting to highlight that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And as you will know, if you know anything about the Gospels at all, you will know that on many occasions, people wanted to make what we might say in modern parlance, they wanted to make a song and dance over the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. There were occasions when they wanted to make him king he would have none of it. There were occasions when he healed people, and the people who were healed were told, go your way, don't say a word, keep it quiet. We don't want to create a a great amount of disturbance or excitement. Go your way, enjoy your blessing, but don't make it widely known. In other words, Jesus was not looking for publicity. It wasn't it wasn't for that time. He wanted to carry out his mission, his mission of mercy. He wanted to be, to be able to teach and to preach and to perform miracles. And he wanted to demonstrate that he was indeed the Messiah. But he did not want to create a great deal of public spectacle over it. But all has changed now. He's on the threshold of Jerusalem. He's about to go into Jerusalem, and ultimately he's going to experience Gethsemane and Calvary. And it's all changed. He wants everyone to know. He doesn't want to hide it any longer. And we find here that he tells two of his disciples to go forward into one of the villages, and there he will find a colt, And they are to take that colt, and if someone asks, why are you taking the colt? They are to be told, the Lord has need of this colt, and that will be enough. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing to them and to us that he knows all things, that nothing is hidden from him. He even controls the animals, and he's able to find that provision there for him because he has ordered and directed all things, and he... he takes the colt that's taken back to him. They put him on the colt, and they make a great hallabaloo. He's going into Jerusalem. They're proclaiming him as the king, peace, and earth. And all of these things have been said, loudly proclaiming that he here is the Messiah. And the reference to the colt will be found in one of the prophecies of Zechariah. And therefore, it was clear to everyone that here was Christ fulfilling prophecy. And what do we find? We find that some of the, the Pharisees, they were not pleased. They were not happy. Verse 39, some of, some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples this is not appropriate for a teacher of God. This is not appropriate to have all this commotion coming into Jerusalem. This is what was behind them. Master, rebuke thy disciples. He answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. It was appropriate. It was time The whole of Jerusalem was to know that here was their Messiah, and he was coming into Jerusalem as a king, and it was time to let them all know so that with all, without exception, would realize they were living in very special, privileged times. This was the coming of the Messiah and many of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah were being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And it was appropriate, and Jesus was happy to accept the acclaim. As we said, there was other occasions when he didn't want this, but now it was appropriate. Well, we might well ask ourselves, why was it appropriate now? because Christianity, friends, is not something that was done in a corner. We have nothing to hide in Christianity. And the time came when Jesus would have them know that he was the Messiah, and what was going to happen in Jerusalem when he was going to be rejected by the chief priests and the Pharisees and the leaders of the people, it was to be widely known. And let's remind ourselves at this time, it was the time of the Passover, and Jerusalem's population would swell, maybe up to three times what it would normally be, because the Jews would come from the surrounding area, and some foreign Jews would come and they would want to partake in this annual uh, religious festival. And therefore, the place would be swarming. And Jesus wanted them all to know that he was the Messiah, and that he was going to suffer, and he was going to die. And on the third day, he was going to rise again. And he was therefore willing to accept the acclaim, because it was appropriate. This thing was not going to be done in a corner. There was a time for quietness, and there was a time for reservation, but not now. Everything was in place. Well, are there lessons? Is there something we can learn from this? Well, we're inclined to believe there are a lesson or two for us. It's a time, therefore, for the Christian church Likewise, to proclaim the gospel. This is not a time to hide our light under the bushel. This is a time for us to freely proclaim Christ and all his fullness whenever we get an opportunity. And this should be the, the goal and the aim of every minister and every gospel congregation We are not to be ashamed of Christ and his words. Indeed, the Lord Jesus reminds us in the gospel that the day will come when people will be ashamed of him and his words. Well, we're not going to fall into that trap. We know we'll not make ourselves popular, but we haven't come to be Christians to be popular. And we haven't entered into the holy ministry to win the approval of men. We look for the approval of God, and the only way that we can get the approval of God is to go forth and to preach the everlasting gospel. And if they will not hear, then they will not hear. That be up to them. But this is something that a congregation must take on board, and that we must identify with the time and the opportunity that's before us. Here is Christ telling them all that he's the Messiah and that they are to believe upon him. And what was going to happen? It was not going to be a secret. It was going to be proclaimed. And multitudes would see it. And those Jews who came from foreign countries would be able to go back to these foreign countries and be able to retell what they saw and what they heard. It also reminds us, surely, how... um, fickle public opinion can be. Here we have Jesus being acclaimed by the people. They're delighting in him. What are they saying? They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And indeed, they should be praising God for that, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There was nothing exuberant about their praise and their reaction. It was purely appropriate. A glorious person was amongst them, and he had performed wonderful things. Lives had been wonderfully changed and transformed by Christ. And all that they said was true, but it didn't take long for their opinion to change. And this is the way with public opinion— It comes and goes, and therefore we cannot rest upon it. We cannot rely upon it. Instead, we are to serve the living God and him alone and look for his approval, and he does not change. One moment, we might be the flavor of the north. We might be the flavor. We might be the best preacher, and the next week, what happens? Well, people have changed their minds; they've changed their opinion, but it also reminds us, friends, of that glorious day that is to come. Here we surely we have something of a preview of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Here he is going into Jerusalem as a king. We know what happened to him, and we'll meditate upon that when it's appropriate. <coughs> Things changed, but the day will come when he will come in power and in glory. We are told that he came at the first to deal with sin. And we bless God that he has dealt with sin like no one else could possibly do. He paid the price for sin. He came. He humbled himself. In order to save his people. But the day is coming when we will look up. He will come with clouds and power and glory. That's what awaits the Christian. If we might say this, it's the next event in God's calendar. We have the great works of God. We sang about them. The psalmist delights in the works of God. And surely the greatest works of God are creation, the crucifixion, and then the consummation. That day when this world, as we know it, this world that we're so familiar with, will be wound up like a, like a garment, and we will enter into the eternal world, the world that will not change. That's what's happening, friends. Here we are in the last days, and the last days began when Jesus Christ came at the beginning. We're in the last days. And here we have a preview, or oh, a faint preview. It will be absolutely glorious that day when Christ shall return, and he shall be glorified in his saints. Hear the people raise their voices. Blessed be the king. Can you imagine the great triumphant sound that shall note that day when Christ returns and his people are raised from the grave and they've given their, their spiritual bodies? What a day that will be. And I want to ask you this, morning, this evening, before we pass on to the next point, friend, do you know anything of this? Have you got any hope of this at all? Will you share in the acclaim of Christ? You know, the Bible talks about two resurrections. The resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the damned. Oh, what a fearful day that will be. People think that somehow they can escape this. We cannot escape it. You know, that's why some people get cremated. They think if their bodies will be burnt, that somehow that God cannot reconstitute their bodies. But we know that will happen. Whether our bodies will smolder, in the grave and return to dust, or whether they are burnt in a furnace and they go to ashes. The day will come when we'll hear the voice of the Lord Jesus, and we will come out of the grave and our bodies shall be reconstituted. What about you? How will it be for you that day? Will you be able to share in the acclaim of Christ. The only way then, friends, to share in this is to have him as Lord and Savior. That's the only way. Secondly, we have, following the acclaim of Christ, we have the anguish of Christ. And this is where our text is taken from. We have the anguish of Christ in verses 41 to 44, and we find in verse 41, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Jesus, the Son of God, weeping over it. And he wept because, as it says there in the text, they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not recognize, they did not appreciate the blessings that God had lavished upon them, the wonderful knowledge that they possessed that other nations knew nothing about, and the privileges that God had given to his people, sending prophets, telling them the day was coming when the Messiah would come. And John the Baptist, he was the forerunner. He broke the 400-year silence. God had not spoken to the people for around 400 years until he raised up John the Baptist, and he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God. And he was pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then Christ himself came and took over from John the Baptist and began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as you know, he clearly demonstrated that he was the Messiah. Oh, he wasn't the Messiah they expected, that's true. But he was only correct in their false teaching. He was the Messiah, but not the one that they expected. But nevertheless, they refused to delight and to glory in God's mercy in his visitation to them. And because of that, because they would not believe what happened, they could not believe. What does it say? Verse 42, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. They did know, but they did not believe. That's what it means. They knew, but they wouldn't accept. They wouldn't believe. And what happens, friends, when we come to that point, when we we know things, but we will not believe? What happens? What happened here? But now they are hid from thine eyes. And basically, what this verse is telling us you've known the truth, but you won't believe the truth. And therefore, you will not believe the truth. You cannot believe the truth. It's a judgment of God upon them. It's an awesome verse. It's a humbling verse. It's a verse that should cause us to examine ourselves. Are we ones who are in the full light of the gospel? Are we enjoying gospel privileges? And in a sense, know the truth, but we don't believe it in the sense that we are committing ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're in a day in a danger of despising the day of God's visitation to us, to you. Because that day might come when having enjoyed gospel privileges and gospel visitations, when God has somewhat drawn near to individuals, And surely we can identify with this, can we not? Even as Christians, we can identify with the fact that there are times in our Christian experience when God draws near to us, closer than other times. We can can hold our hand up and say, that is true. Well, it can also be true for the unbeliever. It can be true that God in his mercy has drawn close to unbelievers in a day of his visitation to them, and yet they have despised that day of visitation. That's a dangerous position to find oneself in. And it's difficult to define when it ends, and it's difficult to define when God will work. When God will remove the visitation, we cannot be dogmatic about these things. But here it clearly is. Jerusalem had been visited. Israel had been visited. God had visited them in mercy, and they had despised his mercy and his grace. But now they are hid from thine eyes." But despite all that, what do we find? Jesus wept over it. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept because he saw the ultimate judgment that was going to come upon the city of Jerusalem. And we know that happened The Roman governor Titus came in A.D. 70, and he besieged Jerusalem. He surrounded Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. He killed men, women, and children. He ransacked Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as God, saw that happening. As one commented or made a comment, here we have uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ revealing himself as man and as God. Here we find him crying as a man. And here we find him prophesying as God what was going to happen about 40 years afterwards. Do we not here see, therefore, the love and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does this not teach us something about Jesus? You know, the doctrine, the teaching that we find here is absolutely awesome. And it's a teaching that's very difficult for us to get our minds around. What are we talking about? We're talking here about the love of God. And you might think, well, the love of God is, a, is an easy subject. It's something that we know about. Well, we might know something about it, but it's very difficult, actually, to fully grasp the love of God. There are some people who will tell us that God only loves the elect. Now we rejoice. God does love the elect. No one's going to deny that whatsoever. And no one's going to deny that God has a particular, a special, a unique love for the elect and for the elect only. But this verse will also tell us that Jesus, as the Son of God, had a love for those who were going to be destroyed in judgment, who were not of the elect. Do you think these tears were crocodile tears? Do you think they were false tears? The Son of God wept over those who were going to be destroyed in the judgment of God. I did tell you, the subject of the love of God is not an easy subject. It will stretch us. And as I said, there are people who will maintain that God only loves the elect. This verse would tell us something different. Jesus shed tears, real tears, the Son of God, the God-man, the one who reveals God in all his fullness, in all his perfection. He cried over those who are going to be lost and perish because they rejected the day of Visitation. Now we might struggle with this. Psalm 7, verse 11, says, for instance, and it is quoted by those who would hold the position that God only loves the, the elect. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God judgeth the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, of course, we're not going to deny anything that's said in the Word of God, and that verse is true. God does judge the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. We will say amen to that. But we will also say that in some sense, which may not be easy for us to to define, God has a love towards those that he is angry with. And if we look at the natural level, we can find this is quite easy to believe. I speak to parents here, but others who are not parents will be able to readily identify with this. If you're a parent, you will love your children or child unconditionally. If you're a natural, normal parent, you will love your child naturally, normally, without conditions. From the moment you have that child, when you first begin to hold that child, and as you see that child growing up before you, you will love that child. And if that child was sick, you would do anything for that child anything whatsoever, you would do it because you love that child. You love your children. But there will be occasions in the life of the child when you'll be angry with that child. And therefore, you can easily love them and be angry with them at the same time. I don't know if that's a good illustration or not, but it does help us to understand That God can both be angry and still love the person. We surely find this here when the Lord Jesus Christ wept. He wept not just because of the physical ruin that was going to come upon Jerusalem, but because many of them would perish eternally. Why? Why? Because they were going to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. The point I wish to drive home to ourselves this evening is that we need to know more of this kind of spirit that Christ showed Others in the Scripture showed something of this also. Not that long ago, we meditated upon Psalm 119 at verse 136, where the psalmist says, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. There, the psalmist is brokenhearted, because of unbelievers who are perishing. The Apostle Paul talking about his fellow countrymen who have rejected Christ, what Christ is talking about here. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Who for? It's for his countrymen, it's for his kinsmen, Is for the people of Israel. Why? Because they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ here is our ultimate example. We know he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Do you think the tears were any different when he wept over Jerusalem? Here he is showing his love towards the lost and perishing. Finally, thirdly, We have the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 45 to 48. He goes into the temple. What does he find? He finds it like a marketplace. And we noticed on an earlier occasion that Jesus did this at the beginning of his public ministry, and now he's drawing towards the end of his public ministry, and he has to go back into the temple. And what does he find? Things have not improved one little bit. He did empty the courts of the merchandise and the merchants when he began his ministry, and he's having to do the same thing again at the end of his ministry. And it may well be that things did not improve. In fact, things got worse because he uses a term here, but ye have made it a den of thieves. That was his denunciation upon these merchants who were selling sacrifices at inflated prices in order to make money and merchandise out of religion, out of the service of God. You have made it a den of thieves. He didn't use that term when he cleared the temple the first time. And that statement, made it a den of thieves, comes from Jeremiah when Jeremiah had to rebuke the people of Jerusalem in his day. And the people in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, what were they doing? They were practicing idolatry. They were doing all kinds of strange things. And then they were going into the temple and they were worshiping God and they thought everything was all right. They thought that they could... (laughs) participate in idolatry and do strange things, and then they could go into the temple and worship God and everything would be okay. <clears throat> but Jeremiah called them a den, of, a den of thieves. And the very fact that it's cited here would be a warning to them because what happened to the people that I'm referring to in Jeremiah well, he goes on, Jeremiah goes on to remind them what happened in Shiloh. And we read about that in First Samuel, because in Shiloh, there was the tabernacle being set up, but because the people abandoned God, what happened? The Philistines came and ransacked Shiloh, and took away the ark of the covenant. And it was many years before it was brought back. And there it was a warning to the people in Jeremiah's day. Look what happened to Shiloh when the people used to go there and offer their sacrifices and meet with God in the tabernacle. The Philistines came and took the tabernacle away and destroyed Shiloh. And the same thing's going to happen to Jerusalem. If you don't amend your ways, and this is surely what Jesus is saying to them at this particular occasion. Look at the history. Look what happened. And if you don't amend your ways, then the judgment will fall upon you as it did in the days of the Philistines in 1 Samuel. well, we're not in far Samuel, we haven't got a tabernacle. we haven't got a temple, we have church buildings. But this is to remind us, friends, that when we come together in the house of God under the means of grace, we are to conduct ourselves appropriately. This is not a temple. We don't have altars. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have furniture. That's typical. Nothing like that. But it is a place where the gospel is proclaimed. It is a place where Christ is by his Spirit. It is a place where we worship God. We sing his praise. We call upon his name in prayer. And therefore, it behoves us to act and deal appropriately when we come to the public means of grace. Christ would have us come before him with reverence and to be reminded of what we seek to do. We seek to worship God in the way that he has prescribed. Well, there we have the acclaim, the anguish, and the authority of Christ. As Christ enters into the city of Jerusalem, the day of grace was running out for the city and the people of Israel who would reject him. What about ourselves tonight? Where are we? Have we received him or are we still rejecting him? This is a day of God's Visitation, a visitation and mercy. And if we will not receive his mercy in Christ, he will visit us in judgment. May the Lord bless his word to us.